Good morning, Community Grace, brothers and sisters. Um, buenos días, hermanos y hermanas um, de la Comunidad de la Gracia. Mi nombre es José Lara. Tengo el privilegio de servir como anciano aquí de esta iglesia. Um, my name is José Lara, and I have the privilege to serve as an elder here at Community Grace. And today I have the privilege also to read the scripture from Luke 19, 28 to 40. And it starts verse 28. After Jesus has said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany, at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two, two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which, one, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were, were sent ahead went to found, found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying it, the colt, its owner asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. As they went along, People spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near to the place where the road goes down to the mountain of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyful to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in the heaven and glory, glory in the highest. Some of the, some of the Pharisees. And the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Thank you, Jose, for reading scripture. And good morning, church family, friends, wherever you are watching this morning. Today is Palm Sunday. This is the beginning of what's been called Holy Week. Jesus' last week as a man on the earth. The first time. This event has always seemed curious to me. As a kid, growing up in church, I remember this, this time of the year, and the palm branches always stuck out to me. And I just want to stop and say thank you to Paul, Heather, and the children's ministry team and the youth group for giving uh, all the, the midweek stuff and the family at home discipleship stuff to work on. Uh, hopefully the kids have had a chance to put one of these together or will today. Uh, we're going to continue those resources on our website. I'm just so, so thankful for everybody who's pitching in in, in their own special various ways uh, during this time. So as a kid, I remember the palm branches and that kind of stuck out to me. But what were they all about? What is Palm Sunday? How significant is this day to us, really? Why was there a donkey? And why were the crowds so thoroughly excited about Jesus? And then just a few days later, yelling, crucify him. Those are just some of the things that we are going to get to the bottom to tonight, today. So take out your sermon notes. 
if you've got those prepared. If you don't, that's okay. Uh, most everything's going to be on the screen. And open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40, which were just read. And the first question you see on your notes, and the first question we're going to answer together today is, what is Palm Sunday? What is Palm Sunday? On Palm Sunday, we celebrate what's known as the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem the week before his death, burial, and resurrection. The crowds greet Jesus very enthusiastically, but then immediately after this time of celebration, Jesus begins his preparations for the cross. It's helpful for us to realize that this weekend, upwards of 2 billion Christians around the world are preparing with us for the Easter season. And for many, that begins with a celebration of Palm Sunday. Now, not all churches in the world have easy access to palm branches. We were just talking, California. Connie grew up with palm branches. Not everybody in the world does that. So I did a little research to find out how Christians in various parts of the world celebrate this day. And I found that in certain parts of the world, they use willow branches or olive branches or spruce branches or even floral arrangements are used. I asked one of our missionaries, Heidi Sisson, what they typically used in Central African Republic. And she said the palm branches are somewhat available. But interestingly, this tradition is mostly seen there as a Catholic tradition. And so not everybody even celebrates this to stay away from such things like traditions. And that brings up an important point. As we enter Holy Week, it's good for us to know that around the world, all kinds of traditions are attached to this day and all the other points throughout Holy Week, Good Friday, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Jesus. Of course, sometimes those traditions become the object of worship. Okay? And then on the other end of the spectrum, for many people, the significance of all these events like Palm Sunday and Holy Week are glossed over and replaced with Easter bunnies and chocolate eggs. But in a healthy middle, we have Jesus and the truth and the significance of this day to our lives right now. And that's what we're going to explore today. Today, I hope to reclaim in our church body and in the church at large the spirit of a worshipful, reverent, relational reflection of exactly what happened on that actual day 2,000 years ago on Palm Sunday that we call it now. And what it means to us today and how we should be welcoming and worshiping King Jesus. That's our goal for today. We're going to see a contrast today between the king that they at that time thought that they were welcoming. And I'll just tell you what that is. That was a change in their circumstances. That's what they thought they were welcoming. And we're going to see a contrast between that to the real King Jesus the king that Jesus actually was. So here's a helpful look at the day-to-day -day events of the entire Holy Week. It kicks off with Palm Sunday, but what else happens that week that much Scripture is devoted to? Let's just take a, a real quick walk through this chart. Hopefully you can read that at home. 
but I'm going to read it out loud. On the Friday, Saturday, before today, before Palm Sunday, Jesus arrives in Bethany, and the crowds come to see Jesus, as they always did. On Sunday was the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Then on Monday, Jesus curses the fig tree on the way into Jerusalem, clears the temple, and then returns to Bethany at the end of the day with the twelve. On Tuesday, the disciples see the withered fig tree on the return to Jerusalem. And then Jesus gives the Olivet Discourse on the return to Bethany. On Wednesday, Jesus continues daily teaching in the temple, and the Sanhedrin plots to kill him. On Wednesday and Thursday, preparations are made for the Passover in every household in all of Jerusalem. And then on Thursday is when Jesus celebrated that Passover meal with his disciples in the upper room, what's known as his Last Supper, and Jesus prays in Gethsemane. Late Thursday night into Friday is the betrayal by Judas and the arrest of Jesus. Jesus stands trial in the Jewish and Roman courts and then was crucified from approximately 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. He was buried that evening. That was the first day, and then Saturday, and then on the third day, Sunday, he rose from the grave. The empty tomb witnesses, the resurrection appearances, that is the chart of events of Holy Week. That's what we're entering into today. And I'm going to encourage you in your homes and in, in your personal time this week to meditate on all the scriptures in the four Gospels that start at the triumphal entry and go to the end of, of the book. I'm going to encourage you to do that. The five-day scripture writing challenge group on Facebook that was started with people here from the Community Grace family and now has exploded into, more. last I checked, more than 6,000 members in the group. This might be a good thing for Holy Week. These scriptures. You'll be spiritually prepared as you open these scriptures every day this week. Prepared for Good Friday when we're back together for Good Friday. And then for Easter next Sunday. Will everyone take that reading challenge this week? Can we be sure of that? Everybody say yes. yes. All right, good. I can hear you out there. So on the Friday, Saturday before Palm Sunday... Jesus makes his final journey towards Jerusalem. Now, only he knew that this was going to be his last trip to Jerusalem. Only he knew that he was going to die that week and rise again. But Jesus knew more than that. He knew several other things. He knew, that the, he knew the conditions surrounding the people. He knew that the Jews were burdened by the heavy taxation and control and ruthless control of the Romans on their people. Restrictions of every kind, numerous executions by crucifixion, liberties removed. He knew what they were facing and what they were suffering. And Jesus also knew their hearts. Jesus knew that the Jews were in search of someone. They desired a king, a conqueror, someone who would come and save them. Rescue them from the Roman oppression. Now, they had seen the mighty works of this man, Jesus, over the last three years that he's been traveling all over the areas. They witnessed him restoring sight to the blind and healing people that couldn't walk. They saw him feed multitudes with lunches. 
They heard about him raising Lazarus from the dead. And they listened to him speak time and time again with authority. They said they had never heard anybody speak with before. They've seen all of these things. No one has ever had this kind of power and spoken with this kind of authority before. Surely this man must be the one. So Jesus came to Jerusalem and he knew that the crowds would cheer. He knew their desires and he knew their hearts. And then on Sunday, it happened. The preparation, the parade, the craziness of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem on what we now call Palm Sunday. Now again, with our time today, we're going to examine together what really happened that day. Why the welcoming and the worship of the king they thought they wanted turned into anger and hatred so quickly. And we're going to see exactly where our worship belongs. To do this, we're going to journey through all four gospel accounts of the triumphal entry. Interestingly, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem is one of the handful of events that's recorded by all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All right, and, and a lot of people, when they're first seeking Christianity or first getting to know what the Bible is all about, um, kind of scratch their heads and wonder, why are there four Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they seem to be saying uh, some really similar stuff. I want to answer that question uh, because it sets up where we're going today, and it's vital for us to know this. Jesus' life and death and resurrection 2,000 years ago turned the world upside down. It really did. It went from a, a, a handful of believers, and then in the first 300 years, it became the dominant religion of the whole Roman Empire. It's clear historic fact. Almost 30 million people professed faith in Christ. That's a lot. That's more than half the Roman Empire. So throughout that process, there was a heavy demand on written accounts of what happened. There was a heavy demand. It was the most demanded thing. Even more so than, than toilet paper. I, I shouldn't have gone there. But we can relate to that right now. It was in high demand. Okay, so... Four accounts were inspired by God and preserved to be Scripture. They were the accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of the four was written by men with different backgrounds to different audiences for a different purpose. There's a reason there are four. Thus, they emphasized different aspects of the person and ministry of Jesus. And together, combined, they give us a complete picture of who Jesus was, the man who was God. So with that in mind, let's briefly look at the four different gospel writers. Who were they? What, were their, what was their ethnicity? What, who was each of their audiences? What was their purpose for writing what they wrote? Okay, we're going to ask those questions for all four. First is Matthew. Who was Matthew? He was an educated Jew. He was an apostle. And he wrote to the Jews for the purpose of validating Jesus as the Messiah. He is the Messiah, Jewish people. Okay, then there's Luke, Mark. Mark wrote his gospel for the Romans. Different audience, entirely different audience. The Romans were very pragmatic, action-oriented people. If it was efficient and if it was profitable, we'll use it. If not, it's gone. So Mark's gospel, therefore 
We know him as John Mark when he traveled with Paul and Barnabas, same guy. He wrote for the Romans, and his purpose was to announce Jesus to those who were not familiar with the Old Testament. And so this is the shortest of the Gospels, and it's the most action-oriented of the Gospels. Third is Luke. Luke, on the other hand, was a doctor. He was an educated Gentile, and he wrote to a Gentile audience. Now, Gentiles like stories and details and chronological order. That's us. We like those kind of things, too. Luke wrote specifically to a man named Theophilus. He wrote his books, Luke and Acts, to that man and to a Gentile audience. Thus, Luke is the longest of the four. And then there's John. John was also one of the 12 apostles. He was a part of Jesus' inner circle of Peter, James, and John, who he spent the most time with. And more than that, he was Jesus' best friend on earth. He was known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And John wrote his gospel as a theological gospel so that everyone, he wrote it to the world to show that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, and why that matters so much to the entire world. All four men present Jesus as God incarnate. That means who took on flesh, who lived, who died, who rose again to save sinners, to conquer death, and who still lives this very day. Whether the writers presented Jesus as the king or the servant or the son of man or the son of God, they all had a common goal, and this was their common goal, that everyone who reads them would believe in Jesus. So what we're going to do now is combine all four of the gospel's accounts into one story, into what's called a a harmony of the gospels. Luke's account will be our main text, which we've read now. And when additional material from the other three gospels appears on the screen, it's going to appear in a different color. So we'll get a complete picture of the events of the triumphal entry. We ready for this? All right. So everybody open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to our main text, Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. As we examine the scriptures together, we will look at a harmony of the gospel's account of the triumphal entry. Let's do this. We're going to start with verses 28 and 29. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he, knew, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet. Now I'm going to stop right there because already we're seeing something. Notice where he went. On that first Sunday of Holy Week, Jesus went to the place where the Old Testament prophecies foretold that the Messiah would appear outside of Jerusalem by way of the Mount of Olives. And Already, the prophecies that unfolded in Holy Week, our beginning right here. And when they arrived there, continuing in verse 29, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So Jesus sent two of his disciples on a mission that sounds a little funny, sounds a little strange, right? But they did it. They're like, okay, that sounds good. 
But it is a mission for a great purpose to fulfill more prophecies about him, the Messiah. Did you know that in Jesus' first coming, more than 360 Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled to A.T., exactly fulfilled in the events of Jesus' life on earth. 360 were fulfilled exactly. There were hundreds of year old prophecies. And there are hundreds more to be fulfilled in Jesus' second coming. And we have every reason to believe, since all 360 were fulfilled exactly in his first coming, that all of the prophecies will be fulfilled exactly in his second coming as well, too. And we look forward to those things happening. Things happen the way the Bible says they will, because the Bible is God's word. So now we get to one of the most intriguing characters of the story. And that is the donkey. You ready for this? We all love this part. The two disciples received Jesus' instructions to go get the donkey, the colt of a donkey upon which no one has ever sat, and untie it and bring it back. What's the significance of the donkey? The significance of the donkey to Jesus was this, that riding on a donkey conveyed the same humility that he had been conveying for his entire life, for his entire ministry. The donkey was also considered an animal of peace in contrast to the war horse that a king would normally ride into town for a celebration. Jesus here is intentionally and deliberately using the donkey to fulfill more messianic prophecies about himself, specifically from Zechariah 9.9, which Luke does not record, but Matthew and John both do. From Matthew 21.4 and 5, Matthew writes, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Zechariah, saying, Say to your daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Prophecies are being fulfilled. And by fulfilling this prophecy, Jesus is saying, yes, I am king, but I am gentle and lowly. I am not, on my first coming, riding on the great war horse with the sword and the rod of iron. That will be the second coming. That will come. But at this moment, on this holy week, I am coming humbly and compassionately to bring salvation, not from an army, but to bring salvation from sin and death, shame, guilt, to wipe those enemies away. This message of peace is something the disciples and the crowds did not understand that day, but that everyone in the church must understand about Jesus the Prince of Peace. He brings the only lasting peace. So when you picture the donkey, always remember that we are very much at war. It's a spiritual war. We fight spiritual battles with all kind, in all kinds of ways every day, but we wage it with weapons like peace and truth and grace and faith and the Word of God and prayer, and love. Those are our weapons as we follow Christ. And they win the battles more than anything. Follow Christ. 
Well, the disciples obeyed, and it all happened just as Jesus said it would. Look at verse 32. So those who were sent away found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. Now, I love this part right here. Have you ever noticed uh, that there's no resistance from the owners of this donkey? They're, trying, they're taking their donkey. What would you do if somebody was taking your donkey, right? So look at what Jesus told them to tell them, though. The Lord has need of it. And they gave no more resistant, resistance. Now, that the use of that title, Lord, here implies, it, see, it would seem, that the owners of the donkey were followers of Christ. The Lord has need of it. Okay, take it. They were willing to give that sacrifice to the Lord. Verse 35, And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. So Jesus is on the donkey, and more prophecy is being fulfilled. And the triumphal entry into Jerusalem begins, and the excitement builds among the crowds. In verse 36, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Okay, now this sounds a little funny too. But before I explain this, let's look at what Matthew, Mark, and John record here. So Luke said they spread their cloaks on the road. Matthew 21.8 says, And others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. Mark 11.8 says, And others yet spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And John 12.13 said, So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. We have some being laid on the ground in front of Jesus. We have them being waved in the air. The four gospel writers emphasized different things that the crowds did because for each had unique significance for their different audiences. To spread garments on the road, to be dirtied and trampled, is something the Gentiles would understand because that was pretty common, a sign of respect for the king that's coming in in the procession. For me to take off my coat and throw it on the ground for the king to trample on it would be a great honor. And so they did that. Now to spread palm branches and wave them in the air was a Jewish national symbol for a victorious king. These people knew exactly what they were doing. And it had significance. So everyone in the crowd here was excited, and they were more than willing to make a sacrifice and be a part of this great thing. One gave a donkey. Others gave their cloaks, their coats. Others hurried to cut branches from fields and trees. Because when a king is going to lead his people into victory, all of the people want a part of that. Say, hey, I want to be a part of that. And we do. We're excited to follow a victorious king or a victorious sports team or whatever the case is. All his people are more than willing to make personal sacrifices and all his people are going to praise him and worship him, which is what we see next in verses 37 and 38. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And Matthew 21, 9, I want to add this verse too, says, And the crowds that went before him and the crowds that followed him were all shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So here is a scene that instantly pops into our minds when we think of Palm Sunday. There's lots of pictures on this. I love this because if you can see it, you see the joy on people's faces and you see the sacrifices they're making of their coats and how exciting it was. Multitudes waving their branches, excited to see Jesus' entry in light of all the Messianic prophecies and in their current condition and in what they expected. They had long awaited the Messiah of their hopes to come and rescue them and overthrow the Roman Empire. And now they saw what had to be him. And so they yelled, blessed is the king. Hosanna. Hosanna, which means, oh, save us. It's a plea. Oh, save us. Son of David, king, the Messiah, the chosen one. They recognized him. They thought that he was the Messiah of David, and they thought that he was about to establish his earthly kingdom right then and there. What an exciting day this is going to be. He's going to establish his kingdom today. But is that what Jesus did? Did he establish his earthly kingdom on that day? No. Would it have been awesome if he had? Yes. It would have been amazing. Will it be an awesome day when he does return to establish his earthly kingdom at his second coming? Yes, it will be. I had a, an old friend that used to say, when Jesus sets up his kingdom on earth, it's going to be a glorious day. No more elections. One king, one kingdom, the entire world. That will be an awesome day. But they expected that then. And as we continue in verse 39, we get a glimpse of what the religious leaders were doing all, during all of this. Verses 39 and 40. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now that's a cool statement. Jesus was just, he was cool. I just love that. But there's significance in this too. Every shred of this has significance to it. The elders and the Pharisees were constantly around and constantly opposing Jesus because you know, they were trying to turn the people against him. They were jealous of him. Eventually, they succeeded to turn the people against him a few days later. They certainly did not like seeing Jesus proclaimed as their Messiah. They didn't believe in him. So they couldn't hush the crowds themselves, so they challenged Jesus to calm them down, and he refused, saying, even if, if the people were to be quiet, the very stones would cry out. There's other references to stones crying out in, in Scripture as well. But here's the significance I want to draw out, is by, by refusing to silence the crowd, you know what Jesus was doing? By refusing to silence them, he was accepting the praise and the worship and the recognition of him as the Messiah and King. Yep, that's me. I am not going to silence them. But he knew that his remaining work on earth would be vastly different than what the crowd expected. He knew that this moment of popularity would be short-lived and that his death was just around the corner. He knew that. And it's amazing how quickly and severely this crowd, these people of Jerusalem, turned on Jesus in the following few days. Why did they? 
Why did they turn so hard against him? That's our next question. And what do we learn about ourselves from this crowd? I'm going to answer that. Pay close attention. Why did the crowds turn so fast and so hard against Jesus after the triumphal entry? As Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem, there was a celebration all over. The crowds waved palm branches, cheering, praising. But what Jesus did in the next few days stunned and bewildered them. In the next few days after his triumphal entry, Jesus doesn't gather any troops. He didn't lead a revolt. He did not do what they expected. Instead, he drove out the money changers out of the temple. Instead, he taught them to pay tribute to Caesar. He taught that giving out of poverty is worth more than wealth. He taught that in order to be great, you must be a servant. Jesus Christ came not to conquer by force as earthly kings do, but by love and grace and mercy and sacrifice, not to conquer nations, but hearts. To bring eternal peace with God, not temporary peace and comfort on earth. It sounds great to us that we who believe love that. But to them and much of the world, and even to us sometimes, It's not what they expected, and it's not what they wanted. Jesus did everything the people didn't want, and so the praising stopped. The adoration stopped. The worship stopped. So why did the crowds turn so fast and hard against Jesus? John tells us in his his gospel in these terms, John 12, 37, though he had done so many signs before them, still they did not believe in him. The purpose of Jesus' miracles and teachings all along was to lead them to faith in him, but the hardness of their hearts wouldn't let them see that. They rejected him and what he offered because it wasn't about what they wanted. And it's amazing how it is with us as well. When things go our way, when God does what we want, when Jesus makes our cause happen, it's easy to worship him, right? Oh, God is so good, isn't he? It's easy. But what about when he doesn't do these things because he sees a better way than the way we see it? We don't know that. We don't acknowledge that. What happens when we face oppression? What happens when we suffer great loss? What happens when we experience troubles? What happens when we lose our our comforts? How about you? Jesus knew the crowd's hearts. They were never for God, really. They were more for themselves, their own interests. They were for their own circumstances to be changed. That's what they wanted. They chose what they wanted over what Jesus offered, over Jesus himself. And we're faced with the same question today. Do we only desire God to change our circumstances? Think about that honestly. Is that really what we want more than anything is for God to change our circumstances? Or do we want God? 
Do we want to know Christ? To truly follow him? Will we welcome Christ and worship Christ as the only good king of our lives? Oh, the great glory, if we do, that awaits us. So I want to close with two next steps so you don't lose this opportunity to recommit your life to Christ or to give your life to Christ for the first time. And certainly to make the most out of this Easter week, this holy week. Here are the two next steps. The first is to welcome and worship Jesus as my only king. Just tell him that right now. I've put other things on the throne above you. I want to worship and welcome you as my only king. This is an exciting time. We have Holy Week in the midst of a coronavirus pandemic. This is a fascinating time. It's a great time to commit your life to Christ and see what he does through it. He is worthy of worship and he's the only one. He's the only one worthy of us following him with our entire lives. I'm going to encourage you, if you want to give your life to Christ, if you want to ask him for for a new life that he offers, for forgiveness for your sins, you can pray to him right now. Uh, But we are happy to meet with you if you'd like. This is, uh, again, um, a call, a reminder to fill out that communication card uh, on which you can share your interests, your needs, your desires, And if you want to talk to somebody about salvation or getting baptized or being discipled or joining a small group, being involved in the church, yes, you can join a small group even right now. They're meeting on Zoom, which is pretty neat. And we'll talk about that more next week. But make this holy week, this holy week coming up ahead of us, special and worshipful intentionally. You have time at home to do it right now. I know our our routines are, are shot, but you do have the time to make your homes a great place of worshiping Jesus this week. But this can't stay at home. It's got to get outside the home. So this is next step number two. Invest and invite those who God has put in my life. Okay, God has planted you where you are and put people in your life for a reason, for them to see light from you and receive the love of Jesus from you. So if Jesus is our king, then his mission is our mission. And his mission is to reach everybody with his truth, with his gospel, to bring all peoples into the greatness of worshiping him, of being freed from all bondage through him. Oh, that's good news. And it's our mission. So that is our life's primary purpose. And uh, here are just several things I'm going to encourage you to do as a result. Pray. That was our focus last week. To pray. This is where it all begins. Did you pray more last week since we were together? than usual. Maybe you did. I hope that you did. God answers those prayers. If you didn't, now's the time. Pray more. Pray often, all throughout the day. And then invest and invite. What that means is I'm going to invest in the people that are in my life. I'm going to invest in them so that they know their needs are taken care of, so that they know I'm a Christian. I'm going to invite them to explore Christian truth with me. This is our mission. So just personalize that. What does that look like in your life? Of course, serve people who need it now. Son of man came to serve, not be served. So who else, who has God put in your life that that needs something right now? Keep giving faithfully and sacrificially to Jesus' work. And pray and reach out, pray for our missionaries. 
I want to throw, I want to include them. They're out, uh, really even more isolated than we can imagine. They need your prayers always, but especially now. And reach out and encourage a missionary that you know this week, would you? Again, use that communication card to stay in contact with each other. And we will be so grateful for a record of your attendance today and just some thoughts about what you're going through, ways we can pray for you. We have a growing e-prayer team uh, that is praying for you. And those prayers are powerful, brothers and sisters, friends. So worship Jesus a lot. Reach out to others a lot for him this week. And we'll be back together again on Good Friday, this coming Friday, and then Resurrection Sunday next week. Let's close in prayer today. Lord, one word that's stuck out to me today is Hosanna. Oh, save us. Oh, rescue us. And I myself have received that salvation and eternal life. But Lord, I, I'm, still a, I'm still a sinful man, and I'm going to call out to you. Lord, I pray that you'll get the attention of, of me and my family and this entire church right now and bring us to you, to welcome you in our lives, to worship you in our lives. Lord, please, I pray, I pray on behalf of all of us that you would do that this week and make this week so radically amazing in varied ways. Some will be challenging and difficult and dirty. But what glory awaits for us if we're living to serve you and to follow you and to worship you. That's my prayer for this church, for this community and this world, wherever we have influence. And we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.